Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Great to be with you all today. Before we dive into the message, I want to uh, share one final announcement, something that's coming up that I am very excited about and very invested in. On July 21st, we are going to be having the first ever Husband's Retreat here at Grace Church. And this Husband's Retreat is focused, uh, Pastor Tim Ayers and I are going to be teaching on what does the Bible have to say about being uh, selfless or or showing self-giving love like Jesus in our marriages. Now, uh, this is something that, that... I feel very, very strongly about. I think we all would agree that it would be better if husbands were more self-giving in our world. I think it would lead to stronger marriages. I think it would lead to stronger families. And so this is an opportunity for us to, uh, those of us who are husbands or, and by the way, this is open to those who maybe you're engaged or you're, you're just dating, or maybe you just would like to be a husband someday. For anyone who's interested in digging in, this is the opportunity for us to take that next step and really invest ourselves in, in self-giving love towards our marriage. Now, I want to just kind of make one little observation. This is a Friday. July 21st, and there are plenty of other things. There's plenty of reasons that you could come up with not to go to this thing, okay? It's going to be the easiest thing in the world to get out of because, oh, I I can't take a day off work. I can't. If selflessness is something that we need to learn as husbands, maybe the first thing we need to do is to selflessly choose to be there for something like this, okay? This is an opportunity. You're going to hang out with other guys. You're going to meet people. We're going to laugh. We're going to eat good food, relax. It's going to be really, really good. I'm encouraging you to check it out. GraceChurch.us slash husbands. Take your marriage seriously. There you go. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll get into this. Father God, thank you. Thank you uh, for this beautiful morning. Thank you for this beautiful community. I'm so grateful to be able to be a part of what you are doing in our midst. Um, God, as I, as I uh, open your word, as I begin to preach this sermon, I pray that I, I would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Would you uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today uh, as, we, as we hear your voice. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so over the last four-ish years or so, I have been working on, in my, on my, my property at home, I've been working on growing what I call a food forest. That's what permaculture nerds would call a food forest. It's a thing. And basically the way it works is you, you have a big deep bed of wood chip mulch, and in that, that mulch you grow all kinds of fruit trees like apples and pawpaws and vining plants like blackberries and raspberries and gooseberries and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And then, and then kind of in the mulch itself, you grow strawberries and like wine cap mushrooms. It's basically my own little Garden of Eden. You know, walk in and just eat stuff off the ground. It's awesome. And so, so I love it. It's, it's, it's my favorite. Now, the thing that you got to know is I have no idea what I'm doing. As I, as I do this, I am, I am relying entirely on uh, YouTube and trial and error, but I'm, I'm just kind of figuring it out as I go along. I learned the hard way that, wow, you can't plant trees so close together because then they grow up and they get bigger than that little tiny sapling. I learned Jerusalem artichoke, fantastic, also extremely aggressive, so you better know for sure where you want to put it uh, before you put it in the ground. Uh, I, I had a fence that I built painstakingly and then realized it was way too short and the deer came in and just wreaked havoc on all that. So I'm learning as I go, right? I'm not, I'm just a complete amateur here. But here's the cool thing for me as a, as a Bible nerd, as I've been working on growing these plants and cultivating food and actually beginning to eat some of the stuff that I've grown myself, I'm beginning to recognize something that would have been an absolutely common part of the human experience for most of human history, which is 
what it means to have a relationship with the ground, a relationship with the plants that you, that you grow for your food. And I'm coming to a whole new appreciation for what it would mean to actually sustain yourself with the food that you grow. It's way harder than I thought it was. Because what, like what, we live in a world where you just go to the grocery store, right? And there's this huge mountain of fresh produce from all around the world. We don't have to, have to sweat at all to get that. When you actually have to produce the food for yourself, it's a whole other story. And so, again, this is just a hobby for me. Like, I don't depend on my garden to, to survive, but my goodness, if I had to, wow, I have a much deeper appreciation for, for what is involved. Like, I, I felt anxiety this year for the first time because it didn't rain for like a month. Remember that? It didn't rain. And so, imagine what would it be like if you couldn't just reel out a hose to deal with that. That's what I'm starting to—these are the kinds of things I'm starting to become aware of. Now, I tell you all this. I'm mentioning my food forest and all that I'm learning. I'm telling you this because today we're going to talk about the biblical thread of vineyards and vines. And it's a really common image. It's all over the Bible. But because of my work in my garden and the things that I've been learning, and I'm beginning to understand that this image— to the people who first heard these, these texts, the, the, the people living in the ancient world, this image would have carried with it a lot more weight. A lot more than I ever understood before. So that's what we're going to talk about today. This is week five of our sermon series, Threads. And if you haven't been here for this series, basically what we're doing is we are looking at uh, literary and artistic ideas or images uh, that, that weave throughout this whole library of scrolls that we call the Bible. They don't always mean the same things when you see them, but like hopefully after these last few weeks, when you see sheep in the Bible, you're going to have some ideas that, that maybe ping in your mind or, or uh, the tree of life or blood or whatever. These are threads that you see that they are all kind of different and they're, they're interpreting one another, but they all tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. And again, today we're going to look at the, this thread of vines and vineyards. It's all over. All right? Before we get into what Scripture actually has to say about vines and vineyards, it's important to spend just a second talking about the world behind the text. And when we say that, what we mean is the world of the authors. Like, what was their world? What was their culture? What was their worldview? And the people who first received these texts, like, what was their world like? What were their cultural values? And so it's, it's helpful, uh, for example, to ask the question, why are vi vines and vineyards such a big deal in the Bible in the first place? And so one of the things that's helpful to know is that grape cultivation is a very ancient, very, very ancient thing. Uh, archaeologists have, have found in the, the Caucasus area, they have found uh, like, like fermented grape residue on the inside of pottery from 8,000 years ago in the country of Georgia. Uh, they've found an entire, the ruins of an entire winery in Armenia from 6,000 years ago. So it goes way back, right? We've been cultivating grapes for wine for a really, really long time. And if you look in the ancient texts and sources outside of the Bible, you find there are all kinds of references to vineyards and vines and, and in, in winemaking, in, in art and literature and all, all kinds of things. And Israel, the, the people of God, the Israelites, were no exception. This was all over the place in Israel. For example, in the temple in Jerusalem, they actually had vines and vineyards growing on the outside, looking like, like carved into the outside of the temple as decorations. Uh, they minted coins in Israel that had, that had grape clusters on them. This was an important image in Israel. But why? Why were, were grapes such a big deal to the Israelites? Well, if you were an ancient Israelite, 
um, basically everybody would understand that the presence or the availability of grapes or wine, it told you a few things about how life was going, okay? If you had wine, for example, you knew that things were okay. There was peace, there was provision, there was abundance in the land. So like, think about peace, for example. If you are able to grow a successful vineyard, you know how you do that? Just like what I've been learning with my food forest, right? It takes years, years of hard work and labor, and, and you got to have years of back-to-back peace because grapes are not an annual crop. You can't just plant a seed and then get grapes that year. It takes years. You got to you got to uh, clear out the land. You got to keep the weeds at bay. You got to prune carefully. You have to make sure the wild animals don't eat all the all the leaves and all that. So you've got to do all of that if you want to have a grape harvest. And you can't do that if your country's at war. You can't do that if there are enemy nations coming in and raiding your land and taking your harvests away. So if you've got grapes, if you've got wine, it means there's been at least a little bit of peace in your land. Conditions have to be perfect. Uh, But these these grapes and wine, this is also a symbol uh, for God's provision. Because again, I mentioned the drought that we had a little bit this spring. Uh, In the ancient world, you depended on God to send the rains, especially in the Judean hill country where the Israelites lived, which was very arid and very dry. So if you wanted to have a grape harvest, God had to send the rains. God had to make the, the vines produce well. So you depended entirely on God's provision and abundance. So if you had grapes, again, if you had wine and you had access to it, it meant Things were going okay. God was protecting you. God was sending the rain. In short, bountiful vineyards, bountiful vineyards were a symbol for God's peace and provision and abundance. And that idea right there, you find that all through the Bible. There are just constant references to, uh, to vines and vineyards. I won't even get into all of them, but, but you just start flipping through and you'll start seeing it. All the way from the very beginning, like uh, the Garden of Eden. Now, it doesn't specifically mention grapes or vineyards, but, it, but the, one of the ideas of the Garden of Eden is that there was fruit everywhere you looked. Like the humans could go and they could eat fruit off of every plant that produced fruit, vines, trees, and, and it, was, it was amazing. It was abundant. Um, also, after the flood in Genesis, what does Noah do? It's like the first thing he does. He plants a vineyard. So that's, an, again, a symbol of God's renewing creation, and, and there's a vineyard right at the beginning. Uh, I love this one. In the book of Numbers, you can look it up later and read the whole story, but in the book of Numbers, the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt, and then they make it through the wilderness, and then they send some spies into the promised land to see is the land any good? Is there, you know, is it worth moving in? And so they go in to take some of the produce from the land and kind of sneakily bring it back. Well, they bring one cluster of grapes, Numbers tells us, and it was so huge and heavy that they actually had to have two guys carry it between them on a pole, right? That's how big the, so yeah, the land is pretty great, right? This is, this is like a pretty amazing place. I think we're going to be okay. That was the, what that grape cluster symbolized. So uh, uh, yeah, it's basically Eden in that promised land all over again. So grapes and, and wine and all of that means things are going well. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. It also, uh, to the Israelites, it meant that things were also going well with your relationship with God. Not just your relationship with the ground, but your relationship with God. Over and over in the Bible, we see this interplay between human faithfulness on one hand and God's provision on the other. There's some relationship in in the scriptural imagination between what we do and how God responds. For example, in Proverbs 3, uh, the, the proverb writer says, honor the Lord with your wealth, 
and with the best part of everything you produce, then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. In other words, honor God with your generosity and he will provide for you. And you'll have wine, which means again, things are going okay. All right, all that to say, abundant vineyards in the Bible are a symbol of the good life, the good life that God promises his people. And that good life is unlocked when the people live in line with God's desires. Okay? So that's vineyards, and that's kind of the the baseline idea here, right? There are a lot of vineyards in the Bible. Some of them are part of the narrative. Some of them are in the poetry. But but most, if not all of them, are tapping into that concept in one way or another. Because again, these, these, these threads weave throughout Scripture, and they're all kind of drawing on the same basic idea. But here's where things get really fun. Uh, I, I find this to be the really cool part because, yes, that's what vineyards mean, but some of the biblical authors, they decide to be a little dynamic with this image, and they start flipping things on their head. They start interpreting this idea. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the most probably— I would even say the most important vineyard passage in the whole Bible is something I don't even know if if most of us have read. It's in Isaiah chapter 5. And I want to show this to you because Isaiah, the prophet, he uses vineyards in a way that is, frankly, a little bit surprising and shocking. So please, if you want to take a look with me, turn there. Uh, It'll be page 568 in the House Bibles in the seat in front of you. Um, By the way, Here's how much of a, of a nerd I am with these biblical threads. I realized I started see, once I started looking for them, I started seeing them everywhere. So I don't know if you can even see this on the camera, but I, I've started like, there's a little vine, a vineyard over Isaiah 5, and I started drawing that every time I came across the vineyard, that kind of thing. I'm a nerd. Okay, here we go. This, again, this is a prophecy where Isaiah is about to make a pretty provocative point using vineyards. Here's what he says. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and he planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and he carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? that I have not already done. When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. And then here's the twist. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Hmm. So Isaiah, he wrote this passage at a time when Israel was very corrupt, was very corrupt. There was a ton of injustice and violence in the land. And frankly, to Isaiah, it sure seemed like God's plan, God's intentions for the world, for the plans for his people, were just completely off track. Which is why the fact that he uses a vineyard as this 
as this metaphor here is, is perfect for what he's trying to say. Because again, I'll just revisit this. I've been learning, right, through my food forest, I've been learning just how, how much work it is to grow fruit. Getting fruit out of the land, it's, it's a lot more work than you, than you might think. Years of, of uh, labor and pruning and weeding and all of that. And I, if I did that, like if I was doing all that work in my garden and the only fruit that I produced after four or five years of waiting was just like garbage fruit, I'd be ticked. Look at all that work I did, right? Now, it's just a hobby for me. Imagine if this was your livelihood. Imagine if, if, if you had to depend on the produce that you'd spent all these years working on. Okay, that's, that's uh, something that the, the people who first heard this would have understood. They would have been hot under the collar when they started hearing what this, what this gardener was going through, right? They would have been upset, like, oh, all that work for nothing. And they would have been shocked. I think appropriately so. But when they, when they came to that twist in verse 7, when they realized, oh, we're not just talking about a garden here. We're not just talking about a vineyard. We're talking about the people of God. God is the gardener and he's the frustrated one. This vineyard we've been talking about, it's the people of Israel. God expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Now, there's a little play on words here in Hebrew that's just kind of lost in English, but I think it's really interesting. I'm just going to butcher the Hebrew pronunciation, so don't at me. I, I get it. But here's basically, the fruit that God was expecting in Israel was mishpat, justice, right? But instead, he found mishpak, which is violent bloodshed. Interesting. Uh, he expected the fruit of zedakah, that's righteousness. But instead, what did he get? Zaakah. Cries of distress. What Isaiah is saying here is that, that God chose his people. He planted his people where they were to be a beacon of his intentions, right? Israel was going to be, according to God's plan, Israel was going to be a nation that exemplified his peace, his, his abundance, his joy, his, his justice, his righteousness to the world. His nation, Israel, was going to heal all the rest of them. That was the plan. But instead, look at what they had become. There's that interplay, again, between human faithfulness and, and God's abundance. Because from the very beginning, God's promise was clear to the Israelites. He said, look, if you live out my good intentions, I'm going to knock your socks off. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make things good. You live out my justice and righteousness in the world, and you will experience my abundance. It's a promise. But here Isaiah is making the point that the opposite— is also true. The opposite is also true. When human faithfulness and, and, and justice and righteousness, when that breaks down, so does God's abundance. Here's what Isaiah predicts is going to happen, right? This is uh, to God's failed vineyard. He predicts in verses 5 and 6, look, you produce bitter grapes, and so the land is going to lie fallow. Wild animals are going to come in and, and tear up the vines, and weeds are going to take over this garden which was meant to be so beautiful. Now, I know this is just imagery, this is metaphor, but what Isaiah is predicting here actually happened. This actually happened to the Israelites because the consequence for them abandoning God's desires for this world was exile, was exile. Uh, the leaders of Israel were carried off into Assyria and Babylon and the vineyard of the Lord, right? The promised land, the, the people of God was overgrown with briars and thorns. That's a provocative image. 
It's a provocative image, right? A symbol of abundance that's been always there talking about abundance, the fruitful vineyard. Now Isaiah turns it into a symbol of desolation. Now for a long time, hundreds of years, in fact, after this this, uh, exile, it seemed like this just might be where the story ends. Maybe God finally just gave up, walked away for, for good. And people started to question when or even if God's mission would ever, would ever get back on track. Was Eden lost forever, right? Would, would, would God's vineyard lie fallow for good? Is that how things are now? Well, that's what people were asking until Jesus entered the picture. Jesus, who was a teacher and a prophet like Isaiah, and guess what he used in his teaching all the time? Vineyards. Yeah, he talked a lot about vineyards. For example, he did it in his parables. And we're not going to look at too many of those parables today. Actually, in fact, that's your take-home passage for this week. I want you to read uh, one of the parables of Jesus, all about a vineyard. It's Mark 12, 1 through 2. So sometime this week, read Mark 12. But this time, I want you to read it in light of Isaiah 5. I promise it's going to come into some new light for you when you realize that, that Mark 12 actually has some really deep connections with what came before. Okay, so, so that's your homework for the day. But, but here's what I want to say. Back to this thread. Jesus, yes, he teaches about vineyards. He uses vineyards a- a- as a metaphor, just like the prophets did. But Jesus does not just talk about vineyards uh, as a metaphor to describe the people of God. He also enters into this metaphor to describe himself. To describe himself. And I want to show you what I mean. So take a look with me. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And oh, look at that. There's another little, little grapevine uh, illustrated right here in my Bible. Interesting. Uh, John 15, where Jesus, this is the night before he is betrayed, or the night that he is betrayed before he's crucified. And Jesus says this, again, tapping right into the imagery from Isaiah 5. He says, I in the true grapevine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Now, the disciples of Jesus, they would have all been very well familiar with the imagery of the prophets and the imagery of the vineyards in Scripture and all of that. Growing up, I'm confident they would have memorized Isaiah 5. I'm telling you, it was a very important passage to the Israelites. So all the disciples, they they knew Isaiah 5. They knew about God's vineyard and all of it. They had been taught by their elders about the Babylonian exile and what happens to the people when they drift from God's intentions and, and when they bear the sour grapes of injustice and violence. So the disciples, they, they're swimming in the, this biblical thread. They, they have it in their minds. So for Jesus to say that he is the true grapevine, this is not just a, a simple metaphor. This isn't just a teaching aid. No, he is stepping right into the tension of Isaiah 5. He's essentially saying, guys, God's vineyard is not desolate and overgrown anymore. It's bearing fruit again. But this time, the fruit is sweet The peace and the provision and the abundance of God is back. It's back. The fruit of God's intentions for this world is made real, right? Through me, 
through the true vine and through you, my branches. I said earlier in the message, abundant vineyards in the Bible are a symbol of the good life that God promises his people. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that now that good life is available to you and to me. It's, it's here again. We can have it. We can taste it. Now, when I say the good life, I know for some of us, we're thinking like American dream. We're thinking like being a millionaire and, and having power and fame and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. And, and I'm also not talking about the good life, meaning like a life free from suffering, because that's not it either. When I'm talking about the good life, the good life, I'm talking about the kind of life that produces the fruit of Jesus's influence. A life that draws energy and nourishment and refreshment from the Son of God, just like a branch on a vine. The fruit that comes from that deep connection, that abiding connection with Jesus, that fruit looks exactly like the kind of fruit that God intended for us to bear in this broken world from the very beginning. I mean, this fruit, here's how the Apostle Paul describes this exact same fruit in Galatians 5. He says, look, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That, that's a familiar passage, right? We, we talk about that passage all the time, but let's just take a second and camp out here. Because in Isaiah 5, in Isaiah 5, the, the people were left to their own devices, and what kind of fruit did they produce? Bitter grapes, right? They produced violence. They produced injustice and chaos. That, that fruit was rotten. And when we look around at the world today, what do we see? We see a lot of that kind of rotten fruit. We see a lot of that same exact thing. But when we are grafted into Jesus, when he is the true vine in our lives, we bear his fruit. We bear his fruit. Fruit like love. I mean, could you just imagine? Think about your life for a second. Can you imagine if when people saw you walking around, they saw the love of Jesus? Just that was the fruit. That was on display. Or, or, or joy, if that's what people saw. What if you had a reputation, a reputation as someone who is peaceful or someone who is just, just patient? What if that's what your reputation was? What if your, your deep and abiding connection to Jesus, the true vine, and, and the pruning of the master gardener that you welcomed in your life, what if that all made you kind? What if it made you good and faithful and gentle? What if you were known for your self-control? This is the kind of fruit that we bear when we remain grafted into the true vine and when his spirit, Christ's spirit within us produces fruit that we could never produce on our own. And think of it this way. We were created as people, we were created to live in Eden, right? We were created to, to walk in the garden eating all the stuff off the ground. We were created to be caretakers of God's bountiful garden. Things fell apart, but someday we know that thanks to Jesus, we're gonna return there. We are going to be resurrected into a new creation where we will get right back to what we were meant to do, living and caretaking an abundant creation. That's where things are headed. So what about right now? What about the between times and the not yet that we are living in? Well, I'll tell you what. In this broken world, our lives can be signposts pointing right there, pointing to where things are headed. 
as the vineyard of the Lord, even now, we can give our broken world a taste of the fruit of Eden. Fruitful, abundant, loving, alive. That can come from us, not because we're especially good people. We're not like cut from different cloth than everybody else. And we sure aren't the kind of people who are working so hard that it just magically happens. No, that happens to us because we are connected to the true vine. And the fruit that we bear, it's his. It's his fruit. That's where things are headed and we can show our world what it looks like even now. So there you go. That's the thread of the vineyard, right? Through scripture. And there are so many other passages we could talk about that would tap into this, but I I wanted you to get this idea in your mind of this this thread of abundance and life and, and faithfulness and how it all kind of weaves through Jesus. But now I want to talk about how that thread also weaves directly into your life and into mine. Because I want to draw your attention now as we, as we kind of wrap this up. I want to draw your attention to one final thing that Jesus says in that whole John 15 discourse about being the true vine. Because this is important. He says this to his followers. He says, If you remain in me and my words, in other words, my teaching, remains in you, well, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great glory to my Father. You can ask for whatever you want and it will be granted. Now, I will be the first to admit that that raises all kinds of questions for me. Ask for anything? So is, is Jesus saying like, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I want a million dollars. No, no, I, I wish for more wishes, <laughs> right? No, he's not a genie. He's not a genie. And I don't think that's what he's trying to get across here. I, I'll be honest. I don't know the extent of what he's talking about, of exactly what we are allowed to ask for that we're just going to be given. But I do know this. He's talking about fruitfulness here, isn't he? He's talking about bearing fruit, being his disciples. He's tapping into this whole biblical thread about the vineyard of the Lord, talking about, about being true disciples, true followers, followers who do the kinds of things that he taught us to do, bearing his fruit. So again, I don't know the extent of all we can ask for, but this is one thing I can tell you for sure. It is very okay. It's very okay to ask God to become more fruitful. Right? He's the master gardener. We can ask to become more fruitful. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I believe that when we ask for it, God will give it to us, just like Jesus says. When we ask our, our Father to shape us, to be more like Jesus, that is precisely the kind of thing that he does. Because that's what he's been working on since the very beginning. Tending a garden to produce sweet, sweet fruit, and now that fruit can be borne by you and by me. We can ask, and I think he'll give it to us. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I want to give you just a moment to ask. I want you to ask. Ask God. Specifically, ask God to to, uh, make one of the fruits of the Spirit more abundant in your life. I'm going to put that list uh, back up here for a second. So, um, you know, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And I I went ahead and randomized this because I know that the the passage gets so familiar that we sometimes lose it. So looking at that list, just take a second and ask yourself, which one stands out to you as one that you want to see more of in your life? Jesus said, look, if you remain in me, and my words, my teachings remain in you, then you can ask for whatever you want and it will be granted. So I'm asking you this, what sweet fruit do you want God to produce in you? 
take a moment and ask, and then I'm going to close this in prayer because look, guys, I believe our heavenly gardener knows exactly what he's doing, and he can do it in you. So ask. Father, Master Gardener that you are, I ask that you would produce fruit in us. We want to be your people. We want to demonstrate your intentions to this broken world. We want to give people a taste of Eden, a taste of what's to come. I ask, Father, that you would give us all the, the humility and the courage to ask you to shape us. Pruning is not always easy. And yet, Father, it produces more fruit. And so, God, we are opening ourselves up to your skillful hands to make us the the branches that are connected to the true vine and bear the fruit of Jesus for this world. So, Father, would you do that for us? We pray in the name of of Jesus, the, the true vine, our true vine. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church. And the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.